You are listening to the Piedmont Church Podcast. To learn more about Piedmont Church, including our gathering times in Macon, you can visit us online at piedmontchurch.net. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. So we kicked this series off about five weeks ago, and we've been walking through uh, an initial kind of chunk written by this guy named Paul, and he wrote it with uh, a buddy of his named Silas and Timothy, and really, uh, the, the opening part of Paul's letters is generally just this kind of opening greeting with some moments of giving thanks, but we saw really two important things as we walked through this text, and we kind of asked the question as we saw those two things of, what would it take for us to show someone around us that we care? I mean, what would it take for you and I to maybe step out of our comfort zone and show people that maybe we don't know, maybe we don't have a relationship with, or, or maybe even that coworker that uh, we don't always connect with and see eye to eye with, what would it take for us to show them we care? And the first principle that we saw in Paul's excerpt is that we're to be a people of prayer. We're to, we're to get on our knees and to knock on the door of heaven and just cry out to the Lord because he'll change our hearts, he'll give us opportunities, and so we're to be a people of prayer. And then the second thing that we saw is that we're to be a people who have a passionate pursuit. I mean, we can't just kind of go through life uh, just willy-nilly without necessarily kind of pointing where we're supposed to be going. We, we need to have this passionate pursuit in us that God has given us the mission, and as Christ followers, you and I own the mission. It's not like a pastor owns it more fully than a, a non-pastor, a person who just professes faith in Christ. I'm, I'm not that special, right? In case, you, in case you didn't already know that, most of you already know that I'm not that special. But... I am no different than you. Like, I've been given the calling and the function of pastor, but I've been given the same calling as making disciples as you have. And so what we're going to do is we're going to continue in this little portion in the first 10 verses that Paul wrote because there's a third thing that really we see from these people in Thessalonica. So if you'll indulge me and uh, let's stand in the reading of uh, of God's Word uh, this morning. And we're going to start off in verse 1. We'll read through verse 10. It says, Paul... Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You may be seated. So here on Collegiate Sunday, football season is back. Can I get an amen? amen? That's right. I think Mercer kicks off this Thursday night. You had a, a couple of... You know, Pony League teams kick off yesterday, I believe. Uh, sorry, Pac-12, love you guys. Maybe. 
But then the real football starts this weekend. SEC's coming, and then somewhere down the, the line, cheerleading football, the NFL comes here soon as well. So, you know, if you're into that, here it comes. But with that in mind, I, I, I was thinking about our, 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 our topic this morning, and I wanted to kind of share a story with you. And what I think is most important about this story is the perspective most. It's not necessarily the story, but it's the perspective in which I'm going to kind of share with you of what's happening. So I grew up playing football uh, really in middle school. I started. So in eighth grade, I go out for the football team. My dad worked closely with several teams for many years, and he tried to like kind of keep me at arm's distance from football. But eventually I walked up to him at the end of my seventh grade year. I said, hey, dad, I want to play football. And uh, he goes, okay, sure. I had never played flag football. I had never, I mean, I've been on the field my whole life, but I'd nef- never necessarily been a part of an associated league. And so uh, I go out my eighth grade year. Now, I'm a slow, chubby white guy on a very athletic, multicultural team. And so I, I remember my first day going out, we did this thing called Oklahoma drills. And the way we did it is you'd lay down on your back. And then they'd blow a whistle, and the two guys would get up, and then you'd hit. Now, I don't really know. I think the coach was just out there to get me. And so every time I'd go against the best player on the team, and his name was Brian Summerhill. I'll never forget it because it's like it's ingrained in my head and probably on my back somewhere. The whistle would blow, and about the time I would get up, he's in my grill, coming with all like felt like 455 pounds just knocking me over time after time. I never got pinned up against anybody else. It was always Brian. Like every time I see, I'm, like, I'm trying to like cut and cheat. Like, hey, bro, won't you, won't you get right here? Let me get back in the line. And they're like, nah, cuz we don't want none of that. You got all of Brian. And so I'm in eighth grade football just scared to death that I'm going to have to do anything against Brian Summerhill every single time. Well, thank God I graduate from middle school. I go to freshman year in high school. Another school opens up in our district. Brian is not in my high school. Praise Jesus. So I don't have to see Brian every day. However, I continue in freshman year. I get a little bit better at football. I'm still garbage. I'm just slow. Everyone else is better than me. And even better than that, at this point in my life, everyone around me had kind of gone through what we call the change. Their their voices were a little deeper. And I'm the starting center. If you know anything about football, that person's job is to call the huddle. And so I'd go out there for practice, huddle up! Huddle up! I mean, this is, and everyone, everyone else is like, come on, guys, let's get in the huddle. And I'm over here, huddle up! Just getting creamed. So my first two years of football, I was completely and totally just scared. I, I, I ran from people as much as I could. And, and as a result of this, there were times when I wouldn't go full in because I was scared. I didn't know what was happening, so I wouldn't go all out. I would kind of just kind of tiptoe through some of my drills. I was just trying to kind of fire out slowly, and instead of hitting the other person, I would kind of catch and receive. And, And if you don't know anything about football, here's what you should learn. If you have kids and you, you know, some point get them in the game, the number one way to get in football is to go half speed. Coach Abernathy, where you at? Is that a pretty good, you know, thought? You go half speed, you're going to get knocked out, right? And, and so I, I break my arm midway through freshman year. 
or actually uh, my growing plates in my, in my arm. Like, you know, I don't even know what that is. But anyway, that's, that's Kelby will school me later on what that means. So I, you go through these drills in high school, and you're going half speed. I, I grow up. I, I get to senior year. Now, I, the, the Lord was good. I, I had a little bit of a body, and I, I worked hard in the weight room. And so senior year comes around. I'm in the paper. Like, people are going, oh, Chris Barbie. Like, we'd go in the opposing team's locker room, and somehow... The first game, like, they've got my face pinned up on the board, like, stop him. I'm not that good, by the way. But somehow, my face is on the board. i got a guy who's on my team who signed D1. He's talking with UGA, but my face is on the board. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Maybe this is like a tactic. They're trying to get our brains all messed up. But here's the thing. Eighth grade, ninth grade, tenth grade, eleventh grade, I was pretty scared in football. And there were times where I would kind of just kind of go half in. And there were other times when I'd see the opponent, I'd go, I can take him. So i go full bore. Senior year, I go full bore, entire thing, because I've lifted weights. I'm pretty confident. I really didn't care at that point who you put in front of me. And by God's grace, I go to college play football. Now, because of some bad decisions in my life, I don't make it through college playing football. And then I come home a couple of years later, and I start coaching. And what's, here's the perspective change. See, when you're a player, you're not necessarily thinking about this. If I go half speed, I can get hurt. You're thinking... I don't want to get hurt. They're going to kill me. If I just kind of catch, everything's going to be okay. And I saw firsthand as a coach, that is false. This one kid comes out. It's my second or third year coaching football, and he's a tall little stick. And I know tall, little, but he's like 110 pounds, and he's like 6'5", right? And so, I mean, he's got no muscle dexterity. The kid just needs some peanut butter sandwiches and some protein. But he goes out, and he's just kind of like shuffling through. And I'm like, I walk up to the kid during one of the water breaks. I'm like, hey, bro, if you don't pick it up, you're going to get murdered. Like, this is coming. Like, you're out here just kind of like catching hits. I just need you to go after it because you're going to be fine if you'll just go after it. But if you keep catching these hits, one of these days you're going to catch one upside of the head, and you're not going to get up. Like, it's going to be over. Two plays later, kid breaks his arm in half. Like, literally, he's on the ground, picks his arm up, and he looks like Stretch Armstrong. Like, it's just disgustingly nasty. My junior year in high school, I have a picture of a guy who knocked me out. Let me show you this. His name is Trey Brewer. <laughs> These are not embellishments. This guy right here, I was going through a drill. I thought I heard the whistle blow. He did not, apparently. And he laid me out, son. I mean, he just killed me. And what I learned in that moment is that if you go half speed, you might get knocked out. And here's the thing in life. We run into that same issue. Sometimes in our journey, when we follow after Jesus, we got our eyes fixated on him. We are running the race well. And things happen. We get distracted. We slow down. We start going half speed. And in that moment, the enemy is looking to knock you out. He is looking to take you out of the game. You heard me say it a couple weeks back. We're not just like in a competition against Satan. He is the enemy. He's looking to seek, kill, and destroy. And so he's not looking to just kind of like get you on the sidelines. He's looking to take you out of the game. And so what we're going to see through these people in Thessalonica is that you got to go full speed after Jesus. Like you can't just kind of put one toe in the water and be like, oh yeah, Jesus is nice. No, you got to go full bore after him. And so for some of us in this room, like, you're sitting here hearing me talk about trusting in Jesus, and, and maybe you walked down an aisle when you were a kid, but you haven't really experienced much since then. Or, or maybe you're saying, I don't really know who this whole Jesus guy is, or 
what God is. I'm just kind of searching. And you'll hear at times in life about changes. Like these people who have this amazing testimony who went from like what we would call true death to life, right? Like they, they were addicts. They were struggling, this, that, and the other. We hear that testimony. And we go, man, that's, that's crazy life change. That's huge. But in that moment, we're skeptical. Because well, I never experienced anything like that. Or, or maybe you're somebody who's kind of been wa- walking with the Lord. And you would say your eyes are fixated on Him, but troubles come. As we read in that passage just a second ago, much affliction comes your way, and so your pace for running after Jesus begins to slow down. And it's maybe not an intentional decision that you made. It, it's just something that happens as a part of life. And so your pace slows down running after Jesus. And in that moment, Satan's looking to come in and kill and destroy. And the weight of this world and all of the the struggles that come, they're beginning to make you uncomfortable and distracted. And in that moment, instead of going full bore, you're going half speed. We're going to hone in on the last part of that passage that I read in verses 9 and 10. Paul says, he said, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, I know when we read that passage, there's a lot of feelings that could come and a lot of thoughts that can cross our mind. Like, when we read the word idols in Scripture, how does that really hit us today? Uh, What does that really affect uh, in my heart in, in this moment? What's the kind of bridge getting us from the ancient church, these ancient people, to us today? Well, idol isn't really a term that we use on a regular basis, right? Like, you might have heard it in American Idol, right? Like, you know, that's what, it, you know, it's kind of associated with being awesome, being cool, or you, you might have heard it associated with the, the boy band BST. Raise your hand if you actually heard of this boy band. Anybody? Anybody? Nobody? Like six of us. Great. They've, they've got like, you know, what, B, what, BTS? My bad. Whatever. You know, apparently I'm familiar with them. So, uh, you know, there's just this boy band from, from South Korea and they make a lot of money selling music. But, you know, Urban Dictionary defines an idol as a person who inspires you greatly. Well, I, idols mean something very different in the ancient world. It's not just someone who inspires you greatly. It has a deeper Meaning, and so I, I really want to quickly take you through some of the idols in, in the, the days of which Paul is writing this. Because what we need to understand is that idol worship was common among the people. Like it was a normal practice in their life. And so when he says they turned from idols to God, this wasn't some abstract thing that where we had to search and like, what are our idols today? This was a very tangible, physical thing in their life where they would have been able to say, hey, here are all of the kind of idols, the little g-gods in the world, and here's where people worship them. So the first one is Dionysus. And, and Dionysus is kind of this the little g-god of, of wine and art and vegetation, and, and really uh, he had a, a part that was widely spread of uh, the, god, the god of fertility, and he had a little cult surrounding him, and he had some temples built up around him, and uh, a lot of the the worship festivals around him were, as you can imagine, him being the god of wine, were wine-induced ritualistic dances. And uh, they came in every exotic and erotic event that you could ever think of. And this is how you would worship Dionysus. The second one was Serapis. Now, this, this little g-god has a pretty interesting story. So, 
originally an Egyptian god, but because of Thessalonica's kind of place in the world, they were near a road called the Via Ignatia, which is a, a very heavily traveled road, a heavily traded road. This little g-god kind of makes his way to Thessalonica and really throughout the Mediterranean. And it's because where you have heavy roads and good population, you have what? A mix of culture and you have trade and all these kind of things. So what happens is Serapis kind of starts in Egypt and then a, a Greek leader says, you know what, we, we need to make him more Greek. So we're going to have a Greek Serapis. And so they kind of set up temples and worship for Serapis. And uh, he had several different things that he, he, I guess his most famous little you know, thing that he did was healing and fertility. And then you had this third really famous and probably the most famous idol of the time. I, I told you a couple weeks ago when you'd walk into a town and you hear a proclamation of the gospel, like someone would unroll a scroll and they say, this is the gospel. To you and I, gospel is kind of associated with Jesus. Maybe you think gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or maybe you just, when you hear gospel, you go, oh, that's Jesus' story, that's his good news. But in ancient world, gospel was Caesar. Like, this is the good news of Caesar. And he had his face on every type of money there was. He had temples. He had full structures built to him. And really, in the ancient world, especially in Thessalonica, these were the three primary gods, and there were other little g-gods amongst them. And so, I tell you this because this would have been at the center of your life if you were there. Meaning, if you were to go to do a business deal, you would have walked into Dionysus' temple, you would have paid homage or worship to him, and then you would have kind of done the deal right there amidst the courts. This is, you can kind of see this in Jesus' time in the Jewish temple, right? There were money changers and things not going well, and so Jesus goes in and he flips tables. This is a very practice trade that's going on. Or maybe you and your spouse are looking to get pregnant, and so you haven't been getting pregnant, and so you want to go to Serapis' temple, and you want to say, hey, here's our worship in whatever way that looks like, so let us get pregnant, God of you know, fertility. Or, or, or maybe you just pay homage to Caesar and make sure you pay your tax as well and you lift him up. This is what idol worship would have been during the day. They were at the center of every single person's life in that city. And this is just one way that you and I differ when we talk about idol worship. That's not a normative thing in our culture. See, in our culture, what? We have separation of church and state. And so in many ways, we have kind of areas in life that are compartmentalized, and so they don't necessarily overlap. And so if we're doing a business deal, I don't see a whole lot of people knocking on my door going, hey, can, I, can we do this deal? I need to sell this car to him. Can we do this in the lobby right here? That's not a normative practice in our life. That's, it's, that, that may be strange, actually. Like, so am I getting a cut of this deal, or, you know, how's this work? Anyway, that was a joke, but okay, thanks, appreciate that. Thank you. Religious beliefs in that day fueled everything that they did. But there's something inside of this that we need to really guard ourselves on. We need to, to kind of put our ears up, so to speak, and figure out what's happening in this. And so I want to ask you a question. When you read the Exodus story, meaning the, the Israelites rescued from slavery, Moses leads them out. When you read this story, and after Moses goes to Mount Sinai, and they create a golden calf, do you ever just go, why? 
let me see, let me show you what I'm talking about. Exodus chapter 32, beginning in verse 1. Now, what's about to happen is, remember, the people of God have been rescued from some slavery. They've seen an entire Red Sea part. Moses leads them through this place. They get to the foothills of Mount Sinai. Moses says, I'm going to go up and I'm going to meet with the Lord. And we don't know how long he's gone per se. Could be days, could be even a couple of weeks. But he's gone for some time. And right here, the people of God lean in and they say something. So they say this in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron. Now this is interesting because Aaron will soon be the high priest of the people of God. And they say to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. Notice it wasn't God. It wasn't Elohim. It wasn't Yahweh. It was Moses. We do not know what has come of him. So Aaron says to him, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So gather all your important jewelry, all your expensive stuff, and let's get it together. And when he received the gold from their hand, he fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And then they said, so he gets all their jewelry, he melts it down, he puts it into the form of a cow. They're witnessing this. They see it. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. What? Like, how, how, how did this, how, how do you go from literally witnessing this moment of the Red Sea parting, Moses leading you out, him giving all authority and credit to the Lord, and just a few moments later, like these are not, this is not a different generation. Hey man, let's, let's make our own little idol. And we will give that little thing all of the power and the authority and actually, matter of fact, this thing that we're going to make, it's the thing that took us out of slavery. It's the thing that saved us. They got uncomfortable. They got distracted. And they went half speed. And I'll unpack exactly what that looks like in just a second. But it's this moment. Uh, we have a kickball team here at the church, by the way. And we are 4-0, and right? That's right. That's right. We got our fifth game today. Here it comes. Let's do this. Undefeated. But anyway... What's, what's interesting about, I played baseball growing up, I think a lot of others on our team played sports. If, if you watch people run the bases, you'll learn very quickly um, who maybe did play sports, who didn't play sports, and then maybe who forgot what they're supposed to be doing. So, and I'm one of those who forgot. So when you kick the ball in, in base, you know, kickball, or you hit a ball in baseball or softball, and you run the bases, you got coaches there to tell you when to stop and when to go, right? But... It's, it's like clockwork. I kick a ball, I'm going to go, look, where'd that ball go? Where'd that ball And I'm supposed to be running down the line. Now, if I'm watching the ball, how am I supposed to be watching the line? If I, if I think I'm supposed to be going to second, how am I supposed to make sure I get a good footing to plant? And then what I'm, if you have good fundamentals, as soon as you hit that base, you're supposed to cut your head hard. Because if you don't, you're going to kind of drift. Whereas if you cut your head hard, dip, dip your shoulder, hit with the inside foot, you're going to hit your head, and you're going to go straight to second like you're supposed to. Instead, you're going to end up in right field like I did about two weeks ago. Right? That's what happens when you take your eye off of what you're supposed to be doing. 
You're supposed to be going to second, but you end up in right field, and then you're out. I didn't get out, and I was safe. But anyway, this is what happens when we take our eye off of the prize. And this is why God tells us to stay in his word daily, to be planted like a tree next to a stream, so we can have steady water coming into our life because the enemy will creep in and he will use moments like this to wreck us. We may have the tendency to think that these little g-gods, this little golden calf that they created, have no power, but we are ignoring the word of the Lord when that happens. And I was guilty of this. I, I, I was guilty of thinking, Every little G-God in the world is completely powerless and weak, and we manufacture it. And that stupid golden calf, nothing, right? God's Word says something a little different. In Deuteronomy 32, there's this moment where uh, it's called the Song of Moses. Moses is kind of writing this song, and it's to sing over the people of God. It's to be something that's passed down from generation to generation to generation. And it goes like this in verse 16. It says, They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods. To gods they had never known. To new gods that had come recently whom your fathers had never dreaded. You need to see the connection here. The Lord is speaking through Moses saying, hey, these little G-gods in this world sometimes, we're about to get heavy, are demons. They're, de- they're not just these little items. They're actually, they, there is some authority a little bit because they're fallen angels, so they have some power. And these little idols at times are little G-gods. And, and in Daniel chapter 10, when We see this apocalyptic writing. Jesus comes to Daniel and he says, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. This isn't like some Disney movie, Prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. What Daniel is referring to is literal demons that are overseeing an entire people group. Paul writing to the church in Corinth, speaking of kind of pagan worship and practices of sacrificing meat, says in chapter 10, verse 20, says, no, I imply that what pagans sacrifice to their little g-god, what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Here's the connection that you and I need to lean in and understand when Paul says they turn from idols to the true and living God. What he's saying in many ways is they turn from the demonic to God. And that is a heavy thing for us to wrap our heads around this morning. And it's something that I, I think when we start diving into this text, we go, okay, what does that mean for today? How does that look? Well, let's begin what it looked like them. It was at the center of their world. Sure, they had these physical things, these kind of golden calf relic things that they, you know, they could visually see, but it also meant that if idol worship was a normative part of their culture, that it was worked into the fabric of their friendships. It was worked into the fabrics of their life, for their job, 
for their family members, through cultural norms. And so idol worship, demonic worship, was a part of their normal life. And what we need to remember is that it's not that different today. I'm going to have to start giving this pastor some royalties because it's the second week in a row I'm using one of his quotes. But Pastor Louis Giglio just wrote a book that says, Don't give the enemy a seat at your table. And he's talking about this idea that you could be sitting at a table with Jesus and you're communing with God. But what Satan loves to do, what the enemy loves to do, is he likes to come casually up and just kind of sit at the table and just start a conversation like, hey, how, how are you? What's going on in your life? How's that relationship? How's that job? Oh, that job is difficult, right? Yeah, you know, I don't know how you, I don't know how you do it. I'd have left that job a long time ago. So he doesn't just come up and say, hey, name tag, my name is Satan. I am your enemy, and so make sure that you treat me as such. No, he comes casually, kind of cool, calm, and collective, because he, he's bold and he's slick, and if you don't think so, go read the Bible. What did he do to Adam and Eve? But, I mean, he was bold enough to go to Jesus, like in the wilderness. Hey, hey, I'll give you everything your eye sees. Just bow the knee, Jesus. Just bow the knee. This is the enemy. And so if he could approach the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, why wouldn't he do the same thing to you? Why wouldn't he do the same thing to me? The devil is bold and crafty, and he's not just using some archaic method. He's updated his methodology. He's reinventing. He's, he's looking for new ways to cause you and I to stumble every single day. So what are the idols in the 21st century? What are the little G gods? Well, you probably have some that still remain. I spoke with somebody the other day who was just talking about, you know, the, the, the idol of Buddha and Vishnu and, and some of these other very old religions. They very well could be. I'm not saying that they are. I'm just saying they very well could be. Think about some other idols in our world. That, here's, the, here's the thing about an idol. Right When Caesar creates this, this platform for him to be the leader of people, in many ways it was probably done in a very good fashion. Like a uniting thing. So we could build a strong kingdom where people you know, could get things that they wanted and business could get done the way they needed to, but shifts happen, changes happen. And so I, I want you to start questioning some things in your life. What are some possible, and I'm not saying that they are 100%, but what are some possible idols? Like some things that we would supplant our relationship in Jesus with. Like we might not do it intentionally. We might not do it in our hearts. We might not say, oh man, these things are bigger and better than Jesus. But when we look at the way we spend our money, our time, our efforts, our thought process, we go, these are things that are taking a place of idolatry in many's lot, many people's lives. Is it the American dream? Is it blue donkeys and red elephants? Is it sports? Is it your social media account? What is it? Again, these are not necessarily inherently bad things. These are things that somehow Satan could go, ooh, look, all I got to do is get them to see this way. 
this thing in our pockets that we carry around with us, that when we don't have it with us, we, sh- we get that little fake vibration, right? That little, ooh, did my phone just go, hold on, did, nope, nobody, nobody hit me up. That, that, those endorphins that go through when we see somebody like a picture on our Instagram or our Facebook or that Snapchat, you know, uh, stream we have. I've been doing it for 762 days, right? Let me just, you know, pack, you know, get an ugly picture of the back of my head real quick so I can make a 763. Like all these moments, do they become moments of idolatry in our hearts? Where we say, again, maybe not intentionally, but we're saying, hey, these things, man, they mean a lot. They mean so much. And they're sitting at the table here with Jesus. And eventually, the conversation that we're having with Jesus begins to turn, and he might still be sitting at the table, but we ain't paying him no attention. He's a third wheel on my date with this idol. And if you think you're not guilty, I can promise you at times you've probably been guilty. Because we all fall guilty of idol worship. The question is, to what extent does it go in our lives? And so when Paul looks at the Thessalonian people and he says, hey, look, you have done an amazing job. This is one of the healthiest churches in the New Testament. He says, you turned from idols completely and you ran after God. Your eyes were fixated and you were fully devoted to Him. And what happened a few verses earlier? He tells us when they did that, because they did that, what happened? People around them heard the good news. Like sometimes you and I hear about this commissioning you know mission that we've been given this this thing of hey go and make disciples and we kind of feel the pressure of that and what paul is pointing out in this letter is look if you'll just turn from your idols and run to god and you'll fix everything on him people around you will begin to notice because the cultural shifts in your life are bound to happen they have to happen You can't keep watching the same things you watched before. You can't keep listening to the same things you listened before. You can't keep doing the same things you did before. And I'm not saying that God says, hey, you must be perfect because He knew that you didn't. That's why He sent His Son. And Paul knew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that you and I would fail. And so he writes to another church, the Corinthian church, who really was failing miserably. They were not doing well. And he writes this in chapter 11, verse 23. And this is after he writes that passage about kind of demonic worship and, 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 and pagan worship. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took the bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way, He also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant. And in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Here's the picture that Paul is saying to the Corinthian church and what he's written about and modeled by the Thessalonians that he's saying to you and me. We are idol factories. We constantly make them. We're sitting at the table with Jesus if we've already professed faith in Christ. If not, then you're kind of walking aimlessly looking to see which table you need to sit at. Kind of like a date night. Like one of those speed dates. Like, ooh, you? 
You, next, next, nope, nah, hit the buzzer, stay here for a few minutes, let me get a little more of that, right? But no, we're sitting here, if we're in Christ, we've got Jesus at the table, and the enemy approaches, the devil approaches, and he gets our attention with something, because he's crafty and clever, and what Paul says, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he says, remember, don't look over here, remember, Jesus broke He shed for you.